turn now to an ABC News exclusive. The 18-year-old biracial woman who says she was attacked by four men while white men while she was driving. Althea Bernstein says she was set on fire, and Alex Perez joins us with the latest on the investigation. Good morning, Alex. Hey, good morning, George. The 18-year-old says she's studying to be a paramedic, and some of those skills kicked in at the horrifying moment she was attacked. This morning, police in Madison, Wisconsin, are searching for the suspects responsible for this, a young biracial woman suffering second and third degree burns after she says she was set on fire. I haven't really slept and um, I don't really have an appetite, so it's just, I don't want anyone to ever feel like this. 18-year-old Althea Bernstein says she was on her way to her brother's house around 1 a.m. Wednesday morning. She says she was stopped at a red light and listening to music when she heard someone yell the N-word. According to the police report, her driver's side window was down and she heard someone yell out a racial epithet. She looked and saw four men, all white. She says one used a spray bottle to deploy a liquid on her face and neck and then threw a flaming lighter at her, causing the liquid to ignite. She drove forward and patted out the flames. I don't even like remember anything, but your brain still has that flight or fight response that takes care of you. So I made it home. I called my mom. I went to the, I drove myself to the ER. <laughs> now, in active and ongoing investigation, Madison's mayor saying, while we are still learning more about the details, current information suggests this may have been a premeditated crime targeted toward people of color, which makes the incident even more disturbing. It's definitely um, a learning opportunity, and I'm very, very hopeful that these men um, sort of see all the responses and that um, they know that they hurt me um, and that this is something that's going to affect me for a while. And I really hope that they choose to improve themselves. And authorities say they are reviewing surveillance images from nearby cameras, hoping for any clues that might help them track down the attackers. Cecilia? So disturbing. Okay, Alex, thank you. And Peace be upon you. So that segment we just listened to was from June 26th, 2020 from Good Morning America. And I want to know how did that make you feel to know that this poor black woman, 18 year old, was waiting at a light and four white supremacists show up, yell a racial slur at her, pour lighter fluid on her face and light her on fire. Did it make your blood boil? Did it make you think about what a racist, disgusting culture we live in? Did it make you angry and upset? Now, this story was not isolated. This was shown not only on Good Morning America, it was shown on CNN, NBC. Uh, it was discussed on the U.S. House Representative's floor. And even a player of the NFL had her name on his helmet in solidarity for the victims of systematic racism. Now, there's a twist to all this. Althea Bernstein made the whole thing up. The entire incident was a fabrication. And the way they found out was when the police department and the FBI, they investigated and they looked at all the surveillance video, what they found was that there was no incident. There were no four white male white supremacists. There was no racial slur. No one threw lighter fluid and lit her face on fire. She wasn't even at the vicinity that she claimed to be. This young woman put lighter fluid on her own face and lit her own face on fire, then drove to the ER and presented herself as a victim of a hate crime. 
Now, what would drive a person to do such a thing? What is the motivation to want to be able to say that they're the victim of something so heinous? Now, before we get into that, I want to focus on just the severity of the sin that this individual created. God tells in the Quran, it says, Whoever mediates a good deed receives a share of the credit thereof, and whoever mediates an evil work incurs a share thereof. God controls all things. This individual, this false claim that she put out there, you think about the millions of people who heard it, who saw her crying story and felt the sympathy towards her, but then also all that hate that they had inside that might have caused them to act harshly towards other members of society, that she bore a portion of that sin. Now, God tells us in the Quran, in Surah 4, verse uh, 112, it says, Anyone who earns a sin, then accuses an innocent person thereof, has committed a blasphemy and a gross offense. Now, if Althea, she accused just one individual, let's say she accused her neighbor of committing such an act, we could see the full effect of such a false accusation towards this one individual. For instance, we would see that person being marched off to, to, to court and eventually to jail. And because of that, they would have lost their job. They could have lost their marriage. They could have lost custody to their children. We could see all these compounding effects towards this one person. But in Althea's specific case, she didn't make the allegation against an individual that can be identified. She made the allegation against an entire population of people that there were four white supremacists in Madison, Wisconsin, who were willing to commit such a heinous act. Now, I would say that her consequences are much worse because now we don't know who these people are. It could be anyone. Now, all of a sudden, people in society are looking suspiciously towards their fellow citizens. And you think about that ripple effect that that has on a society where people believe that they live in a society where individuals would commit such a heinous act, that this is something that's commonplace. And if you aggregated all that pain, all that suffering that she's caused, I would say the aggregation of all that pain and suffering is greater than if she just accused the one person that we can identify for her fake crime. And this is the reason that such a act is so absolutely horrendous. We have an example in the Quran of someone who made a false accusation against someone else. And this was in regards to the governor's wife towards Joseph. When the governor's wife continuously tried to get Joseph to break his chastity, to commit adultery with her, and he refused, two times she accused him of being the perpetrator. She accused him of being the aggressor. Now when Joseph was finally vindicated, and they questioned her after Joseph served time in prison. She gave an answer to why such a person commits such an act. She said in Surah 12, verse 53, it says, I do not claim innocence for myself. The self is an advocate of vice, except for those who have attained mercy from their, my Lord. My Lord is forgiver, most merciful. The fact that she was focused on herself, she was seeing how this situation can benefit her. It's the ultimate act of selfishness that she was willing to throw someone else into prison 
because of a false accusation she made, because of a sin she committed. And Althea did the same thing. She committed a sin against herself. She burned her face. And then she goes out and she com- uh, she accuses the people of her community of being white supremacists who did this to her. Now, sadly, none of these news publications that I saw that reported this case, that gave such high attention towards it, came out to correct the error that this was actually a fabrication, that this was a hoax. Now, in Wisconsin, in August, you had the incident with Kyle Rittenhouse, where the 17-year-old shot those two other uh, protesters. And you think, would there have been this level of riots and civil unrest if Althea didn't make this narrative, if it didn't charge the population and put everyone on edge to think that there's white supremacists living amongst them who are willing to go and pour lighter fluid on an innocent black woman and try to light her on fire? Do you think that she bears some of that responsibility? Now, I'm probably being a little too harsh on her. I mean, she's only 18 years old. She's a child. But this is not an isolated case. This, to me, indicates that there's much more to this story than this one-off incident. Currently, there's probably more nationalized, covered hate crimes that end up becoming hoaxes than real hate crimes that are being reported. And it's not to downplay that hate crimes happen. But why is it that there is this perpetual trend of fake hate crimes? And it's across all kinds of demographics. What is the motivation? What is causing this? There's a story that if you got two groups of ants, black ants and red ants, and you put them into a jar together, that the ants would be totally fine. But then if you shake the jar, the ants start fighting one another. The black ants and the red ants start fighting. And they could get mad at each other, but the question is, who's shaking that jar? Because that's the real culprit. Now, to show that this is not a one-off case, one of the most popular, televised, nationalized cases of a fake hoax crime was Jesse Smollett. Now, here is a Hollywood actor who has all the vanities one would think a person would want. He's a Hollywood star. People recognize him on the streets. He has money. He has status. But he went and did such an over-the-top fake hate crime. For what? What was the motivation? Why would he go and say that, oh yeah, at 2 a.m. in the morning on his way to Subway, two white supremacists, neo-Nazis, came up, said, hey, we're in MAGA country, and they pour lighter fluid on him and put a noose around his head. And he, he carried on this story, and people sympathized for him. And it all ended up becoming a fabrication. It was all made up. What would drive a person to do that? Now, in order to learn from it, there's a lesson I want to pull from. This is from uh, when Britain uh, colonized India. That in Delhi, they had a problem with cobras. So the solution they came up with is they said, look, we will pay citizens for every dead cobra that they bring us. So on the uh, onset, the citizens went around and started killing cobras. And they were getting all this money for it. And some people had the idea. They said, you know what? What if we start breeding cobras and it's a money printing machine? So these individuals, they went and started breeding cobras and getting money in return uh, from it from the government. Well, eventually the government wised up to this and they said, hey, you know what? We're not paying you guys money anymore for the cobras. And those people who were breeding cobras, since they didn't want anything to do with them, they just let them out on the street and it made the problem even worse. So sometimes when society puts the wrong incentives, 
for something, it actually has this negative effect. Now, it makes sense that in society, we want to stomp out racism. We want to stomp out discrimination. I mean, when we look at it, we see this is a trait of Satan. Satan was the first racist. When God created Adam and told all the angels to fall prostrate before Adam, that Satan refused. He said, I'm better than he. You created me from fire and created him from clay. That is if this was a distinguishing factor for his character, what material he was made out of. And Satan was the first racist. He was the first person who discriminated against a group of people because of their genetic makeup. And because of this, I believe we have a visceral response when we see discrimination, when we see racism. And it's natural that we want to stomp it out of society. But what ends up happening is that we start praising people who are victims. And this is the consequence of postmodernism. It's the school of thought that everything is a power struggle. And in postmodernism, the person who's the most victimized in society has the most power. So now we have individuals who are competing with one another to show who is the most victimized, who is the one who has the hardest time in life. And that individual is supposedly in this new paradigm has the most status. So it's not enough that you're a Hollywood star. It's not enough that you have millions of dollars. It's not enough that you're rich and famous and you have all these vanities. What really matters is who is the biggest victim. Now, it's easy to look at one demographic and say they're playing this game, but this cuts across the board. Across every individual, you see now people are trying to outdo one another by claiming who's the biggest victim. You have people of color saying that they're the biggest victim. You have LGBTQ saying they're the biggest victim. You have this concept of intersectionality where people, they say, look, I check more of these boxes that make me a bigger victim than you are. And each person is trying to outcompete one another by claiming who's the biggest victim. Now, how did we get here? This is very strange. I remember when I was a kid, people used to compete for status and achievement and who had the nicest car and the nicest house and these kind of uh, vanity metrics. And it shifted. And the aspect is both these are wrong. It doesn't matter if you're rich and famous or you're the biggest victim. Both these are dead ends. And this is the trick that the devil is playing. The devil realized that people have come to the conclusion that chasing vanities and these kind of worldly possessions has not provided anyone with happiness. And now he's changed it to say, you know what? What you really need to do is to try to identify yourself as the biggest victim in society. That's how you're going to get status. So now you have all these individuals, all these different factions, all these different institutions, each competing to show who's the biggest victim. The cops are complaining they're the biggest victim, that people don't respect them. The people of color, the BLM, they're saying they're the biggest victim because cops are oppressing them. You have Democrats saying, hey, we're being victimized by the Republicans. The Republicans saying we're being victimized by the Democrats. And everyone is playing this game to try to outdo one another by showing who's the biggest victim in society. Now, all this, again, it's a frivolous cause. None of this is going to give us any satisfaction in this world, and definitely it's not going to benefit us anything in the hereafter. So what is it that we should be competing for? God tells us in the Quran that what the believers compete for, what every human being should compete for, is righteousness. In Surah 5, verse 48, it reads, You shall compete in righteousness to God is your final destiny, all of you. 
Then he will inform you of everything you had disputed. It's not fame, it's not money, it's not cars, it's not status, it's not victimhood that we should be competing for. It's strictly righteousness. Being a good person, being kind, being compassionate, being humble. These are the things that have outlasting effects for the good in this world and in the hereafter. If you go to a service for someone who just recently passed and people are giving speeches and talks about the person, it's always the same. They're remembering all the good things this person did, all the joy this person brought to others' lives. This is what ends up mattering. This is an indication for us that what we need to compete for in this world is to become selfless individuals in pursuit of helping others. This is our goal. In Surah 2, verse 70, 177, it reads, Righteousness is not turning your faces towards the east or the west. Righteous are those who believe in God. The last day, the angels, the scripture, and the prophets, and they give the money cheerfully to the relatives, the orphans, the needy, the traveling alien, the beggars, and to free the slaves. And they observe the contact prayer salat, and they give the obligatory charity zakat, and they keep their word whenever they make a promise. And they steadfastly persevere in the face of persecution, hardship, and war. These are the truthful. These are the righteous. These are the traits that we should be competing for. To be those who believe in God. That when God gives us this promise, this recommendation, that the way we need to spend our life is by competing in righteousness, not competing in vanities, not competing in worldly possessions, and definitely not competing on who's the biggest victim, that our focus needs to be to be a righteous individual in this world, that we trust in God. This is what it means to believe in God. God tells us in Surah 90, verse 10 through 15, says, Did we not show him, the human being, two paths? He should choose the difficult path. Which one is the difficult path? The freeing of slaves, feeding during the time of hardship, Orphans who are related or the poor who is in need. And being one of those who believe and exhorting one another to be steadfast. And exhorting one another to be kind. As is emphasized in this verse and throughout the entire Quran, God gives special attention towards that of orphans. And it's interesting because in the past, if someone wanted to show their nobility, their status in society, the cliche story is that, oh, they ran into a burning building and saved the lives of helpless orphans, that this was a trait of status. Now today, if someone wanted to show their status, they instead, they go and they burn their own face and claim that white supremacists did this against them in a form of a hate crime. Or based on these verses, ask yourself this, when is the last time you exhorted someone to be kind, to give to charity, to be steadfast. When God tells us in the Quran, these are the things we need to focus on. These are the, the aspects of our life that we should be competing for. If we really believe in God, then we would do these things. People often think that belief in God means to believe his physical existence. But look at the example of Satan. Satan stood right in front of God and chose to defy him. Let's not make the same mistake. Let's not 
focus on these wrong things. How often is it that we have these conversations with our friends, with our coworkers, and we're commiserating about how miserable our lives are, how hard things are, how difficult it is, how tough this client is, how tough this class is, how we've been wronged or injustice or some other hardship we had to face. That we put that aside, we become selfless individuals in pursuit of trying to do things that please God. By exhorting people to be kind, by exhorting people to give to charity, by exhorting people to not play the victim card, and at the same time not to be extravagant and boastful. The devil loves to push people to the extremes, but God is telling us to pick the middle road, the road of righteousness, the road that is going to benefit us in this world and in the hereafter. In Surah 2 verse 148, it says, Each of you chooses the direction to follow. You shall race towards righteousness. Wherever you may be, God will summon you all. God is omnipotent. God willing, let's learn from these lessons from the Quran. Let's learn from our Creator and do the things that please Him. This is a path that we will never be disappointed and we will always be victorious. God willing, we're going to end there. If you guys got comments or questions, please hit us up at QuranTalk at gmail.com. If you want to follow along the verses of the Quran, we have the Quran Study app on the iOS App Store where we do a word-for-word literal breakdown of the Arabic of the Quran along with an awesome translation. We also have the QuranStudyApp.com website for those who don't have an iOS device. And if you like the podcast, please share it with other people, leave us a review, and until next time, Peace and God bless.